0: We're going to hear from a few folks today, and uh, we're going to focus on these issues. Uh, Normally we have one keynote speaker, but today we're going to have three speakers who are going to give us TED Talk style presentations. Uh, They're going to help us understand what it is that we're uh, up against and the things that we need to focus on. So first we're going to hear from John Harrington. Uh, Where is John? There he is. John John is the uh, executive pastor at Woods Edge Church. And today, John is going to present a talk called, Why Is It Hard to Find the Guy? So, John Harrington, incredible history of church planting, training, and an incredibly capable leader. Let's give a round of applause for John
1: So, uh, shaping the church planting, the shape of things to come. The quest for the guy. So I was praying about this, and I don't even know exactly why I started here, except that 2050 uh, is beyond my reach, you know? And in fact, it's pretty much beyond most of our reach, more so than you realize, except through the ones that we pour into. So Psalm 90 says, O Lord, You've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight is like a day that's just gone by or like a watch in the night. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. I think one of the reasons why this is where I landed on this is because five months ago or four months ago or so, my 17-month-old grandson died. And it changes you when you're experiencing something like that. Because we all think we got at least 70 years. I mean, this passage says that the warranty is up at 70. You may have an extended warranty offered you to 80 that's what it says so every day in my time with the Lord I start out by putting the date and then I put how many days I have spent thus far this morning I wrote 70 years and 347 days I do that every day because I'm counting my days and I understand this we're all finite. So here's the thing. I met Rick Warren when he was just starting to talk about targeting Saddleback Sam, and he had this startlingly startlingly successful strategy of launching large with preview services that attracted large crowds. And for the next 20 or 30 years, he changed the landscape in church planting. Um, and the way he looked at planting in America. Truth be told, Saddleback Sam now has become Saddleback Saeed or Saddleback Sancho. He's not Sam anymore. If he is, there's not very many of them. And uh, he has no interest in how cool your music is or how clever your message is, or even how friendly your children's ministry is. They don't care. And you don't need to be in California to know that as Bob Dylan crooned so long ago, the times, they are a-changing. I started a church years and years ago and. Some of this stuff would work, but I've discovered over time that it works less and less. Uh, I served as the church plant pastor at Hill Country Bible Church in Austin for over a decade, and that church successfully planted, through their generations, several generations, 40 churches in greater Austin. Some of their own network, others we coached and funded, but... They were not our residents, but we helped them plant. And um, we had as many as 18 guys from 12 different tribes that would attend our training modules. But this is what we noted. Out in the burbs, we were mainly red state. You know what I'm talking about? But the deeper into the city we went, the harder the soil became. We sent two of the best communicators I have ever heard into the city center, and they both failed within three years. They had strong teams, they had strong financial support, but they couldn't get it done because the times are changing. Then we saw the same creeping difficulty in the suburbs. Well-funded, good preaching. One was a handsome, winsome army ranger. Another was a professional basketball player. You don't get any better looking than these guys. Mm-hmm. or more winsome behind a the pulpit. They had good core groups. They had plenty of money. We even sent good elders with them, and they could not do it. So this is my personal journey. Uh, We saw some people succeed. We saw 40 churches started. Some of them are very large churches now. But it's by God's grace that it happened. That's all I can figure out. And as time went on, it got harder and harder. I'm just telling you my experience. I'm just telling you my experience. And I have it at least 40 times. But this is what happened to us. People would come marching into the city and they were expecting to storm the gates of hell. And within a few years, they were crawling out of the city, defeated and disappointed and thought something was wrong with them. So my personal journey has driven me to three conclusions. The last one that left like that that crawled out of the city for us Angela my wife and I we were we were sitting in our living room weeping and my wife said I don't think I can send another guy out like we're doing this and so we begin to ask ourselves, what are the big things that make a difference? And I'm going to give, give you three of them very quickly and then we'll let you guys talk. Number one is prayer. How do you find the guy? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into His harvest. Whose harvest is it? What did Jesus think about The harvest. Who's who is it? It's his. And what did he perceive it to be? He perceived it to be what? Plentiful. There are lots of people out there. Do we have plenty of them in Houston? Do we have people that are open to Jesus? Yes. There's something that's gone wrong with the way we're harvesting. Now, some of you may have a different experience. I'm just telling you my experience. And so, uh, praying. For the harvest. One of the things that happened to me when we moved, I moved to Wood's Edge. I actually thought I knew how to pray until I went to this church and I realized I didn't really pray for workers. I didn't pray for har- the harvest. And so I threw Luke 10 2, onto my reminders and in in, on my phone. And every day I get this annoying reminder to pray for workers. And I stop every day and pray. I also, uh, every Wednesday, Wednesdays is workers. I pray on Wednesday morning for workers. The other thing is, I beg God. It says pray how? Earnestly. It's not just a suggestion. It's like, God, God, we have got to have a certain kind of guy that could do this. I get in Jeff's business. He's the guy that's got the hotline. You know, he prays like all the time. And so if you say, Jeff, we need another guy and I haven't found him in in the seats yet. Can you help me? And it's an amazing thing when we start asking for prayer. So prayer is a huge part of figuring out how to crack the code on finding the right guy. Sometimes God just hands one to you. You didn't do anything for him. You didn't deserve them. They just showed up. Uh, so here's what happens when you start praying earnestly. You start developing a, an, expect, uh, an expectation that God's going to give you someone. And so uh, uh, I have this list that I pray over. And I tell business owners that they're on my list. I tell high school students they're on my list. I tell the custodial staff they're on my list. I have one of them here today. He's gonna plant with us in January. Don't tell his boss yet. Second thing is ICNU pipeline. I stopped looking for a charismatic youth pastor from whatever church. I stopped looking for that. I stopped posting planters wanted notices on the job boards. I stopped looking for someone that somebody else had discipled, trained, and developed. Start looking at the best and brightest eighth graders in your church. I'm not kidding you. And create a leadership pipeline. Uh, we designed this program called Vanguard. You know where it starts? Seventh grade. And we have our students our uh, student ministry pastors are looking for the best and brightest and inviting them in to the vanguard and they're learning leadership and disciple making and we're saying you know i think i see in you something in the eighth grade when I was a kid, what, what did they say? They used to see, say this regularly in altar calls when I was a kid. The, the camp pastor would say, you know, some of you, God is calling into missions. Are you ever doing that? I don't care if it's from the pulpit, but are you ever asking your best and brightest? Are you going to a and and going to be an engineer, or are you going to make a difference in the world? I mean, seriously. Are we asking for our best and brightest? So uh, we also, we planted a church at Texas A&M. Don't they have enough Christians there? You would think so, right? But they've this church has only been going for three years, but they have created a worship culture that already sends us worship leaders, and we anticipate seeing planners jump into our residency in preparation for planning. Someday they will say, when I was in the eighth grade, An old man tapped me on the shoulder and told me, I see in you something. Another one of our residents is Dylan. Dylan was saved out of a non-Christian family. He got involved in the student ministry, went to college, then worked at Papacita's as a manager. He was preaching at a nursing home when we met him. We invited him into the residency that collaborates with Dallas Seminary, and he will get his degree while he's preparing to plant a church. He is a gospel-sharing beast who prayer walks every week, and he already has established a network of two house churches, and he has led several people to faith, and he's in month three of the residency. Third thing and I'll quit. Movement thinking. I sometimes have a guy that comes in and asks if they can plant with us. They know we pay residents and they are looking to be paid. I say, go start a missional community in your home and invite a small team of people who are willing to do an ordinary, everyday thing. Bless their neighbors. And we teach them about bless. How many of you know about bless? We we are working hard at teaching people, look, this is simple. It's not that complicated. Go bless your neighbors and watch what happens. It's ordinary things that plant churches. It doesn't take any money to start this way. You don't have to import somebody from Los Angeles. They are sitting in the seats right now in front of you. And you won't waste your money on careerists who really want to find a group of people to listen to them preach. No, they are working right now at ExxonMobil. They are accountants. They are custodians. They are all sorts of people with a different income stream. I read the jaw-dropping forecast for what life in the U.S. will be like in 2050, and it is true that the times, they're changing. But one thing's never going to change. The harvest is plentiful. Open your eyes. Do you see it? Listen, the hope for 2050 is having his diaper changed in your children's ministry today. And he's probably speaking Spanish. Okay, have I stirred you up enough? let's talk around our tables around, around this this is this is the most fundamental thing that you can do in looking for harvest that you would have i c n u conversations and so share about a time that someone had an i c n u conversation with you or that you have had with someone else okay go
0: all right, next up, we are going to hear from David Hill. There he is. David Hill. We've already heard from his singing side, but here comes the preaching side. I'm excited about it. So, uh, David, come and bless us. Everybody, let's a round of applause, David Hill.
2: Amen. All right, thank you. Amen. Well, good to be with you all. Uh, I have an opportunity to share with you a little bit this morning or afternoon. Well, let me start by saying this. Uh, On my wall in my office, I have four people on every corner of my wall. They are heroes, culturally and American heroes to me and inspire me. One is Dr. King. The other is Frederick Douglass. The other is George Washington Carver. And the last is Harriet Tubman. And it is often Harriet Tubman that intrigues me the most because if you know any about our history, she, made, she was an escaped slave herself, but she made 13 trips and rescued over 70 people out of slavery after she obtained her own slavery. I mean, her own freedom. And when she did this, and when, when the Civil War came broke out, the U.S. government had enough sense to do something that churches and organizations don't even do today. Instead of them trying to figure out every little bit of how we can navigate all these back roads to do some of the things we want to do, they went and found her. And they said, you help us, we're going to put you in charge because you know the lay of the land. You know all the back roads. You know the lingo. You know the people. So instead of us going and finding somebody in our own ranks, we're going to find somebody who's already done it, who's already doing it, and we're going to get behind you and support you. What I want to talk with you today about is partnerships in the church, church planning, partnerships with ethnic leaders and those in hard places. Because you can be an ethnic leader and not be in a hard place. It's still important to do some partnership there. You can be in a hard place and not be an ethnic leader or you can be both. But I want to talk to you about why those important, why those relationships are important and how you can do some of that. So I'm going to speed through it real quick so we can be on time. But I'm going to give you five E's with this. One, it expresses unity in its fullness. When we collaborate in this way, we we have the fullest expression of what the kingdom of God looks like. When we reach across aisles economically, culturally, ethnically, and we say, I don't understand all that's going on, but I see you doing it. Man, that is a full expression of what the body is all about. And it ministers to the world of how this thing is supposed to look and be. It expands ministry impact. This kind of partnership reaches, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. We're able to take resources and and, and giftings and merge them together for a greater impact in the kingdom. We all bring something to the table. Thirdly, it extends ministry resources. Partnerships maximize resources, people and organizations, and we can further impact the communities that we are part of. And it gets us away from this is mine and this is yours. You don't need to be over here. I don't need to be over here. But what it does is brings us together in this unique partnership where we value one another. And I'm going to tell you something. I have the I've had the ability to, to live this out. I mean, when I came to be a part of HCPN, we were an inner city church plant and I was a guy figuring, I knew what God had called me to do, I knew I was gonna do what God called me to do, but I didn't have all of the things around me that I needed. When I came into fellowship and in communion with, with HCPN, it was a breath of fresh air. And I think Chad, is, Chad often says that I've become one of the greatest prospects ever to come out of HCPN. Come on, man, that was a joke, y'all. Come on, man. If I have to tell you to laugh, then it ain't a good joke, y'all. Come on, man. Never mind, Chad. Go back to there. But the point is this, that through that collaboration, man, my community has been blessed. Our work has been blessed. Man, that network has come in, and it has enhanced the kingdom of God. And that's what we need more of. So, you know, when we talk about in, in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, we talk about the church at Antioch. It wasn't Jerusalem that sent the guy down there. Something broke out down there. And Jerusalem was like, man, you better go see what's going on. God's doing something. How many times or how much time do we spend sniffing what God is doing? Where is he already present? Where is he already active? And how can I join him in that work? I'm, I'm, I think we need to have more of that in particularly with ethnic leaders and people in hard places. Because there are folks who are determined to do what God's called them to do, and you'll never know who they are. And God is already doing some wonderful things. If we just sniffed it out and joined them and supported them in that, some wonderful things can come about. Let me go on. It erases duplication, number four. And number five, it enhances spiritual growth. When we join in this way, we all grow spiritually. Because the first thing I've learned when you work in partnership the first person God's going to deal with is you. First person he's going to do. You might think you're the one bringing the support. You might think you're the one that's going to be doing the helping. But what you're going to soon find is God's like, I've been waiting to deal with you all this time. I've been waiting to teach you something in this process. So those are some reasons why we should do this. Quickly, I want to tell you how you can do this, how you can do this effectively. I don't know how many of us in here are real estate people. I'm sure there are some. But all of us, even if you're not, all of us understand real estate is about three things. What? And guess what? When you're in partnership in this kind of thing, it's all about three things. Relationship, relationship, relationship. You can have your perspectives together, you can have your team together, you can have all of these things together, you can have all your structure together, and that's important, but if you're gonna partner with folks across the aisle, across the cultural lines, you must have relationships. And that takes time and effort, and you have to be intentional about that. It's the key element of any kind of effective partnership. Secondly, clear communication. You gotta be real. When, if, if, when people want to partner, churches want to partner, and they want to come in and you want to do this across these kind of lines, just be clear about what your objectives are and what your goals are, because nothing interrupts relationship more than mistrust. And because we live in a country, from a cultural standpoint and an economical standpoint and a locational standpoint, there are plenty of seeds of mistrust at times. It ought not be in the kingdom of God. And so what we do is we communicate clearly. Hey, Pastor Hill, we want to connect with you because we want to show our church this is what we're involved in. Well, hey, we want to connect with you because we need some of the resources that you have. Let's be honest with each other, and then let's talk about how this relationship can work. So clear communication is important. Humility has to be at the table. This is a posture of mutual grace, self-reflection, self-awareness, and service. We all come together, and the goal is how can I serve you and how can you serve me? We want to try to outserve each other as we seek to advance the kingdom of God and through church planning and through partnering in this way. Thoroughly respect. And I want to, the opposite of respect is what I want to give you. The opposite of respect is seeing people's value in terms of their deficiencies and inadequacies. So oftentimes when you come to work across these kind of lines, you're going to see things that are different than how you work. And oftentimes if it doesn't meet up to much, well, you know, they, they trying to get it together. But, you know, they don't really know what they're doing. Not recognizing that, you know what, what they're doing is the most effective way for where they are. They understand that and know that. So we want to bring healthy respect when we partner across these kind of lines. Last two. That one is integrity. And the last one is sharing. Integrity because credibility is key and should be established first. Take the time to build relationships. Doesn't mean you have to wait before you start journeying together and you start working on on things, but you got to take the time to to develop relationships. One of the things that's impacted me mostly, most of my ministry life was African-American. It wasn't until the last eight or ten years that I started working cross-culturally, and as I began to build relationships across culturally, I was embarrassed about some of the things that I thought in the ways that I assumed people <coughs> were. As a black man. But because we had the time to develop relationships, I realized, man, they got the same problems I got. His kid's act as crazy as mine is acting. <laughs> His wife just as beautiful as my wife. <laughs> so, you know, we all got something in common. You know, we, we, we work to, we're not as different as we think we are when we take the time to collaborate and work together. And lastly, sharing. Partnership must be a two-way street, and there must be a healthy dependence on each other. All I'm trying to say, y'all, is we've got to take the time to start looking in places that may be hard, and with people who may be different than us. And we got to start paying attention to the fact that God wants to do something in all these places. And oftentimes you don't have to go out and find or create a guy. He's already there. If you just sniff what God is already cooking. Get behind it with just a little bit. and You'll see that the kingdom of God can be expanded and advanced in ways you never would have thought happened. So I want to give you with this question. I want to ask you as you you circle around the table, the question this afternoon is this. um, What are some of the ways, uh, what are some of the things that have hindered you from partnering in this way uh, with ethnic leaders or in hard places? What are some of the ways that seem most challenging for you uh, or why this hasn't happened or some of the obstacles you think of that you think of would happen in doing this? What are some of the things that have stopped this from happening? So i release you to do that, and then we'll go on to our next one.
0: All right. Our final speaker today is Jason Shepard. Jason is a good friend, pastor of Church Project in the Woodlands. He's going to bring our final uh, talk today on multiplying leaders. And so would you please give my good friend Jason a round of applause?
3: Well, howdy, amigos. Good to be with you guys. I know a lot of you. I love you. I'm glad to be in the room with you. Um, We all believe in the need for multiplication. We talk about it a lot but most of us never multiply. Most churches never get to that point. In fact, most churches that plant don't exist within just a few years. And so we have these ideals that never become real. We have these visions and values that we never execute. And so that and other reasons led me to begin this idea of church project, which was a pursuit of what Christ originally intended for the church to be. How did the gospel spread so rapidly around the world so quickly for the first few centuries, and then what stopped that, what slowed it down, what changed. And looking at church history, looking at scripture, looking at the global church, uh, we came up with this idea, uh, what we call a church of house churches. And it involves what I think are three uh, DNA values that were present in the early church that I think should be present in every church, across all people, all places, all time. And three of these. I'll say them for you here, Uh, three Ds to alliterate to help you and me. Uh, One would be decentralization, that we're moving away from primary place and primary priest. What we had in the Old Testament was a primary place and a primary priest, and then Jesus came and said, I'm going to give you the priesthood of the believer, and you don't have to go to a special place to meet with me, but we have, again, made somebody the primary guy, and this is the place. This is the holy place and the holy person, decentralization distributed pastoral leadership. We have elevated and separated the clergy and we've kept all the real pastoral duties for the clergymen instead of distributing true pastoral leadership to people and then diverse geographically based discipleship communities that our communities will not be homogenous people just like us but the beauty of the Bible is diverse. I'll break each of these down for a little bit but the problem with us, I think church planning is not that our theology is bad, even though we have differences of opinion. Most of us are pretty theologically sound. Um, it's not that we're not gifted. I've been around really, really, really gifted people, much more gifted than me, who planted a church and it didn't work. It's not that they're not spiritual or they don't love Jesus, but we're carrying a lot of theology in a broken ecclesiological vessel. And so the structure that we plant that serves these three values is really important. Do you, do we, do I, are we promoting a structure that is decentralized? It's moving away from primary person and primary place. We have made the church building the place. We made me or you or whoever's the lead guy, the main guy. And so everything's revolving around a place and a person. We don't see that in the early church. We don't see it in the movements for the first three centuries, but we do see in the fourth century when it happened after Constantinople, and we bring it back, and we have this special place and this special person, and we've translated the Old Testament theology into our New Testament stuff, and now you don't have to wear a collar, though some can, uh, but now we're just still the primary guy the primary place. So decentralized. It's not about me. We have a church of thousands of people. We have no phone number, no foyer, no office to walk into, no way to find me or anybody else. It's decentralized. It's You want to get into a community of this thousands of people, you go to a house church. There's no way to get here. There's no central for you to see. We have some central, but it's invisible behind the scenes. Central supports distributed. Central exists to help house churches. We exist to raise up house churches and house church pastors. Decentralized. Distributed pastoral leadership. How cool would it be if you had doctors and engineers and teachers and firemen doing weddings and funerals and visiting hospitals? Well, we do. You can have a staff a fourth or a fifth of the ratio of most churches your size if you've empowered and distributed true pastoral leadership. So what we're actually doing is we're taking a small group and we're raising it up to a church. And we're taking a leader and we're raising them up to a pastor. We're making a leader, a pastor, and a group a church. A group's not homogenous. A group is diverse. We're looking at diverse discipleship communities, uh, rich and poor, young and old, black, brown, Asian and white, married, unmarried, mature believer, immature believer, where most of us are propagating homogenous groups, we can't find that anywhere in Scripture. We can't find it in church history. We can't find it until modern church history. And so we have distributed pastoral leadership. where We've empowered, equipped, and identified. We've elevated not the clergy, but the people. Our job is to equip them to do the work. So they're doing the work. They are semi-autonomous yet connected. I love this quote by Daniel Yang. And by the way, I'm not mad at you. I'm just talking fast and passionate about it. (laughs) Daniel Yang, in a recent article, The Rise of Micro Networks and Maturing Networks and Microchurches, he said, because of the lack of sustainability in these previous models, we're seeing emerge more mature networks of smaller churches belonging with a corporate infrastructure that supports decentralization without losing the benefits of a larger structure. We've seen the impotence of these isolated individual disconnected house churches or microchurches, but to be together under one eldership or oversight connected together so that you have accountability and empowerment and strength to work together. Yet you have semi autonomy where you're entrusted and empowered to do the work on your own. That's what we've seen happen. And it's possible. We've seen a prototype to see this happen with at least 7,000 people or so in the Woodlands connected together under one church and other churches are doing this in other places and around the world actually. So we're trying to continue to see how this works. One invisible almost eldership that supports many, many different house churches in many different places. So the question for us is, are you gifted? Sure. Are you called? Yeah. Are you passionate about it? You've left a lot to do this. Do you love Jesus? You love him enough to love his church? Is your theology sound? Of course it is. You've worked on it. But do you have an articulated applied ecclesiology? What is the structure in which you will embody these early church DNA values of being decentralized away from primary place and priest, distributing true pastoral leadership to people away from the clergy in diverse discipleship communities? So I think I had nine minutes. I might be at seven. Now I'm going to let you talk at your table. Are you creating a structure that will embrace these early church DNA values? Thank you.